At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And welcome to The Exchange. Good Monday morning, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead. Another black eye for Boeing. The shares are down sharply as the FAA grounds the 737 MAX 9s for safety inspections. After a piece of the aircraft blew out during that Alaska Airlines flight, we've got the latest. What happens from here and the economic ripple effects? Plus, J.P. Morgan's healthcare conference is underway as we have a busy day for deal making in that space. Headlines coming in every moment now. Jim Cramer brings us an exclusive interview with Medtronic's CEO, who is eager to dispel the myth that weight loss drugs will lessen demand for medical devices going forward. And we'll look at how rate cuts will affect retail. Yes, retail. There are some winners. There are actually losers. And our analyst conclusions may surprise you. Before all that, though, let's start with today's markets. Big moves in the Nasdaq, quieter in the Dow Dom. Yeah, but it's still, though, we're moving up towards those best levels of the session so far, Kelly. And it's mixed only because there's a tiny speck of red right now on the Dow Jones Industrial Average, which is just about flat on the session, down 12 points. Well, we were down a lot more earlier on in the session. 37,455 the last rate for the Dow. The S&P, the broader measure, is at 47.31, which is up 35 points. That's three quarters of 1%. And the Nasdaq composite, tech heavier. You can see where the outperformance is, up 1.5% to 14,742. That's worth 218 points to the upside. Kelly did mention some of the deal-making news today. Biotech, biopharma, healthcare overall, very much in focus here because of that J.P. Morgan conference out in San Francisco, but also because of Merger Monday news. Ambrix Biopharma, Harpoon Therapeutics, Axonix, getting takeover by Johnson & Johnson, Merck, and Boston Scientific in kind of that order. You can see their gains from anywhere from 20% all the way up to a doubling of their shares because of deal-making in biotech and medical services. The Spider Biotech ETF is up 2% right here, and the Spider Healthcare ETF up about one quarter of 1% as well. And then the stock of the day, Kelly also mentioned it, is Boeing because Boeing shares right now down about just about 15 or so points. It's roughly worth 100 points of downside for the Dow. If you want to look at it differently, the Dow would actually be up 100 points if it wasn't for Boeing right now because of the of the, the, what's having, happening right now with the 737-9 MAX model jets being grounded, looking into that fuselage that blew off. It's down 6% right now on the trade so far, 233 spots, 75 the last trade. But again, if you look at the days so far, we've seen a bit of a rollover here, but we're still off the worst levels of the session. We were down about nine or so percent just at the opening bell. So, Kelly, keep an eye on Boeing shares, a big drag on the Dow. I know you're talking much more about this. I'll send things back over to you. Indeed, that's where we start today. Dom, thanks. We'll see you in a bit. Uh, the company, Boeing, that is, has now given airlines instructions on how to inspect their 737 MAX jetliners. About 20 percent of the company's deliveries last year were of this kind of aircraft, according to Jefferies, although they comprise far or less of its future delivery pipeline. Let's get over to Phil LeBeau for the very latest at this hour. Phil? And Kelly, those instructions that you mentioned, the fact that those have been sent to the airlines and they've been approved by the FAA, theoretically, we could see some of the grounded MAX 9s re-enter service maybe tomorrow, maybe the day after that. So that's an indication that the FAA and Boeing 
fairly confident in terms of what to look for to make sure that this type of an accident doesn't happen again. I shouldn't say fairly confident. They'd be very confident. Otherwise, it wouldn't go back into service. The focus of the NTSB investigation, the fuselage plug that was ripped off of the Alaska Airlines plane. That plane, by the way, had three separate incidents where there was problems with the pressurization. At least it signaled that through a warning light that they then checked indicated they should go forward in terms of uh, the airplane continuing to fly. The data recorder analysis, that'll be done in Washington uh, later today and tonight over the next couple of days. That should give investigators a fair amount of information as well. The seats near the MAX 9 blowout where this took place, they were empty. Thank goodness they were empty. Otherwise, this could have been far worse. Also, thank goodness that this didn't happen at a higher altitude. There were no serious injuries in this 737 MAX 9 accident. As you take a look at shares of Boeing, they have come back a little bit today, but they're still down more than 6%. As we mentioned, the FAA has approved the MAX inspection process for those planes that are grounded. Meanwhile, CEO Dave Calhoun, he's out in Renton, Washington, where they build the MAX. He will be holding an employee town hall tomorrow. Quickly want to take a look at shares of United and Alaska. United operates 79 MAX 9 planes. There you see how it moved higher throughout the session, and especially within the last hour once the uh, inspection process uh, was approved by the FAA. Also take a look at Alaska. Almost, almost positive after being down much more earlier in the session. Kelly? That's interesting, though, what you said, Infill. And I'm curious about one aspect of this, because we've had some criticism about the fact that the data, the voice, uh, explain the difference between the data recorder and the black box, yeah, so one, to speak. One records, the, the latter people Yeah, one didn't, records all the data in the plane, and right. one is the cockpit voice recorder, which is what you when you hear the pilots and the crew. And that did not record um, the, the cockpit voice recorder. In this case, Kelly, you, you look, you always want it if you're an investigator. In this case... I doubt that that is of a whole lot of significance because you can hear their interactions with the tower immediately after this accident took place where they say very calmly, look, we've had a depressurization event. We need to turn around. We need to come in. We're declaring an emergency right away. Um, the data recorder is far more important. And, and that is that. always going. That's not something. So yes, it, it has the voice aspect, plus it's more comprehensive because some of the commentary making the rounds says that the U.S. should go the way of Europe and requiring this 25-hour, you could explain it better than yes. me, uh, time frame so yeah. that we don't run into this where it, it kind of auto-deletes. Do you think that's an important thing for us to do, or does it sound like that having this data piece usurps the need for doing that? No, I think, uh, look, the NTSB has been fighting for this for a long time. They have said, why not have these data recorders record for 25 hours instead of where they are right now, which I believe they re-record uh, a rather short time frame. Um, and, and the argument among safety regulators is, this is a no-brainer. Do it. But like so many other things, Kelly, that are no-brainers, that just take, they get caught up in bureaucracy and they don't happen, it just hasn't been approved. Hmm. I wonder if at some point that finally changes here. Right. In this case, the good news is in this case, I'm not sure the flight voice recorder, uh, the cockpit voice recorder, would, would tell investigators a whole lot. Really what they want to look at is the fuselage as well as the data recorder. You know, if nothing else, sometimes these unfortunate events have a way of shining a light on the need to up make those updates that you referenced, and maybe that will be something that comes of this, even if it wouldn't have changed the conclusions sure. this time around. Phil, we appreciate it for now. Thank you, our Phil LeBeau.
Uh, let's talk more uh, about the markets more broadly. As mentioned, Boeing is weighing significantly on the Dow today, but elsewhere we're seeing the S&P and the Nasdaq posting some nice gains. But my next guest says there's too much optimism and the market is no longer cheap. Joining me now is Charlie Babrinskoy. He's the vice chair and head of the investment group at Ariel Investments. Charlie, it's good to see you. Welcome. Great to see you, Callie. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. It's a busy day. You know what's been busy today? Healthcare deals. Every time I turn around, there seems to be something else going on in that space. Does that entice you as an investor? Do you have any kind of broader observations to draw from it? I own a couple. Uh, we own Zimvi, which is uh, dental implants and spinal products, and they are going to be taking over half their business, and the stock is up 100%. So sure, as an owner we of small and mid-cap value stocks, uh, M&A activity tends to be good for us because our portfolio companies tend to be bought rather than doing the buying. Right. Um, I would say healthcare, uh, there's a lot of change, and change produces M&A, and obviously the the rollout of the new uh, weight loss drugs is going to have big implications for lots of people um, and some companies in pharma who lived off of COVID drugs for the last couple of years are now looking again for drugs. So uh, there's going to be um, activity and activity is, tends to be good for small and mid cap value. You know, we've had a ton of activity in the healthcare space. Again, I don't know, maybe some of it now coincides with the JP Morgan conference. We'll talk more about that in a bit. But we also, and I was surprised to see this headline that Leslie Picker was talking about earlier this morning, it's been a kind of a record-breaking year for activist investment as well. doesn't feel like it, but I guess there are some high-profile examples, Disney and so forth. Um, why do you think that is? And I would imagine activism generally you would favor as a value investor? You know, that's a good question, Kelly. We, I have served on some public company boards, and activist investors often make a lot of noise. Um, but a lot of the times, the things they're recommending are relatively obvious. <laughs> Buyback stock, cut costs. They tend to not have some secret uh, sauce that's all that impressive. There's some regression to the mean going on that activist investors tend to get involved in companies that have had a couple of tough years. And so they come on the board and wave their towel around their head for a couple of months. And then the stock does better when there wasn't really causality. I don't mean to be dismissive because there are some companies that aren't maximizing shareholder value. But um, I would tend to say that activist investors don't always add the value that they claim. One more I'm just going to throw at you because we're showing it on the screen. Then we'll talk about the market more broadly. What about Disney? Do you have I, we've talked about entertainment stocks and your, your take kind of on live events versus, you know, post pandemic and the value there. Do you have a dog in that fight? Are you kind of waiting to see what happens? Full disclosure, as you know, Melody Hobson, our CEO, is married to George Lucas. And so we do uh, have an absolute dog in this fight. Um, so it's a wonderful company whose stock has been halved. Obviously, their two core franchises in Mar uh, Marvel and Star Wars have had challenges at the box office. But this is a wonderful brand. Uh, the theme park business is spectacular. ESPN has also been challenged. It's been a lot of things all at once, and it's driven the stock down. But this is still a great, great franchise with great leadership. Iger is, is a very good CEO, um, and this company, which has face some challenges is going to be fine in the long run. You're not just saying that? <laughs> not just saying that. <laughs> All right, let me ask you about the markets. The Dow a moment ago just went positive on the session. S&P and NASDAQ are higher. Finally, a bit of a, a change in sentiment. It was a bad start to the year. And I think, depending on how today goes, the January indicator would tell us that maybe the whole year we could be lower. So perhaps you're right that there's been too much optimism. Yeah, Buffett, uh, one of his quotes that I love is you pay a... a big price for a cheery consensus. And I do think we went into this year, and I said this to you right before Christmas, 
we went from a lot of pessimism, a lot of certainty that we were going to have a recession to a lot of optimism. And there was way too much consensus that there's not going to be a recession, that interest rates are going to drop and that the stock market's going to do well. I happen to generally think that consensus is right, but it always makes me a little nervous when everybody's optimistic. Things can still go wrong, often for reasons that we don't expect. I'm personally worried about China. China's residential real estate uh, collapse, China's possible blockade of Taiwan. I think there's still bad things that can happen. So there is a little too much optimism for my liking. Maybe, Charlie, you can defend me a little bit because I was tweeting earlier today about the need for rate cuts. Yes, it was after the the New York Fed consumer uh, inflation expectations came out. They're back to normal. So kind of that event risk has passed. We know what's been going on with the broader inflation data. And the main the main kind of response to that is no, 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 no. If we if we cut rates, inflation's going to pick back up again. How could you want that? Um, but I think you're kind of in the rate cut camp, too, are you? Can you just explain that? We have had one of the first drops in the money supply over the last 18 months. And after a spectacular increase with the Fed flooding the economy with cash, they've actually been taking money out of the economy and we've had a decline in uh, the amount of cash uh, in the economy. And that is producing a return to more normal rates of inflation. We're not going to get down to 2% this year, but I think we're going to get under 3 And that gives us a much more uh, level, normal rate of inflation. And one of the most important laws in finance is that the rate, the real rate of return, the interest rate above inflation is relatively constant at 1% to 1.5%. So when you have, let's call it, a 2.5% inflation rate, you really should only have about a 4% risk-free rate. Mm. And so interest rates were too high. They were ridiculously low at zero. Now they've come down to about where they should be. And if the inflation keeps coming down, the Fed should drop uh, interest rates. And I think that's the most likely path. Yeah, it sounds reasonable. It's not crazy. It doesn't mean inflation's going to suddenly pick back up again. If anything, you know, it could be better for bond yields in the long run and on a better economy. Charlie, we'll leave it there for now. I hope to pick it back up sometime soon. <laughs> Appreciate Thanks, your time. Tyler. Thanks for having me. Joining me from Ariel Investments. Uh, I mentioned all the healthcare deals. Check out shares of Novartis and Cytokinetics right now. Moving in opposite directions the last few moments as the Wall Street Journal reports that Novartis is nearing a deal to buy cytokinetics. Now, Novartis is only fractionally lower. The report says the deal could be finalized as soon as this week. No details yet on potential price or other terms, but CYTK shares are popping 16 percent. It's been super busy on this front lately. Speaking of which, one of the biggest healthcare events of the year is taking place in California this week. J.P. Morgan's conference coming at a time of increased deal making and tons of debate over the impact of those new weight loss drugs. Something they could lessen demand for procedures like hip and knee replacements going forward. A headwind for the medical device makers. And shares of Medtronic are coming off a three-year string of declines after surging during the pandemic. They're up about 13% the last three months, though. How is the company responding to all of these challenges? Let's get out to CNBC's very own Jim Cramer. He's at the J.P. Morgan Healthcare Conference with Medtronic's CEO. Jim, over to you. Oh, thank you so much, Kelly. I've got Jeff Martin. He's going to go right to this issue about GLP-1. You are very upfront about the idea that there may not be nearly as much impact for diabetes and cardiovascular as people are thinking. Right. Well, well first of all, thanks for having me, Jim. It's great to be here. Uh, yeah, on the topic of GLP-1s, first of all, I said, look, these are an important new class of drugs for, for patients and having a big impact. But when it comes to the other disease states and medical devices, we've done the work from an epidemiology standpoint, 
as well as looking at different scenarios of penetration of GOP ones. And we just don't think uh, we don't we feel strongly it's not going to affect our growth rates or our addressable market near term or long term. Now, it is true. Also, you talk about the gold standard, which is still built bariatric surgery for people who are very obese, which is where the comorbidities come. Right. Right. I mean, look, the, the areas that people question us about about GLP-1s would be diabetes. Bariatric surgery is one of those. And in the, in the, in we've had a, a, it's a small portion of our business, a, a small slowdown there. But over time, what we're hearing from bariatric surgeons is these GLP-1s are actually increasing our funnel as it brings, you know, very obese patients to make them less obese and safer for surgery. Well, let's talk about what I regard as almost the new Medtronic because you're right. doing so many things. Uh, one of the uh, biggest sources of, uh, frankly, of fatality, of death, is hypertension. Right. And yet people have kind of forgotten about it, yet the drugs really don't work. People are kind of unaware about it, even though you get your blood pressure taken when you go to the doctor. You've got the first new thing that might right. be able to solve th- this incredibly important disease. Right. Well, we're, the, we're really excited about this. It's been 15 years in the making uh, and a, a huge investment, uh, but we just got FDA approval for our Simplicity uh, system which basically is a, uh, a procedural-based uh, solution that lowers patients' hypertension, uh, and it lowers it. Uh, we've got data going out 10 years, uh, so it, 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 uh, it doesn't reverse, uh, and, there's no, and there's no, we've had no safety issues, and it's, it, we're seeing consistently lower blood pressure, about 10 millimeters of mercury. Even a small, like, three or four uh, drop is like a 40% uh, decrease in stroke and heart attack. So this, we think, could be the biggest thing our company's ever done. I think this is fantastic because I've been waiting and waiting. You made an acquisition. Uh, but the fact is it's got a novel mechanism. Right. And that's what I think, a, not a pill, but right. one time only. One time only, day procedure. Uh, I think, you know, physicians feel comfortable doing this. Uh, and, and the patients we've talked to, they, you know, they walk out of the hospital and they don't, they don't feel any pain. It's fantastic. Now, you also, you're a company that, frankly, had, had a good course, but now you're doing something uh, almost weekly today. Uh, your neurostimulator, this is something people have been wondering what can be done for Parkinson's long right. term. What can be done for uh, essential tremors? You've got something. Right. So we look, look for uh, deep brain stimulation uh, has been around for a while. We invented it 20 uh, some years ago. Uh, and what we're trying to do now is make this more of a mainstream therapy. The brain, as you know, Jim, is still a white space. And our latest system and the system that got approved today is just another version of our system that has sensing in it. So today we have a commercially available product for Parkinson's and essential tremor that does it's a, it's, works magic for these patients. But in addition to that therapeutic effect, we are now recording signals in the brain and we are going to learn so much about the brain. So just even just in late 2023, uh, in, in September or so, Nature, which is a very big uh, medical journal in our space up there with New England Journal of Medicine, said using our technology, uh, they've ide- this one particular uh, a physician identified a biomarket for depression. I just got off the phone over holiday with a, an East Coast uh, university, and they're telling me they found a biomarker for addiction, all using our system that is recording signals in the brain, which, Jim, is very hard to do. It's taken us over a decade to figure this out, and we're the only ones that have it. Well, it's great because the brain, you're right, it's open. It's now, you're doing something right now with NVIDIA. Right. You're doing AI with NVIDIA, and it's very important for patients. Yeah, so look, I, in today's world, I think the, the amount of data you have is going to be your currency for innovation, right? There's lots of advances in biomedical engineering, but data is going to be how the ceiling. The more data we have, the better quality data we have, the more we're going to innovate. And so what we've done with NVIDIA, we've putting basically edge computers 
inside interventional suites and inside of surgery suites to uh, record everything that's going on there uh, and provide uh, in the moment real-time uh, benefits like in our colonoscopy business, uh, real-time AI processing right there on the edge to identify polyps. What we found in colonoscopy is a very mature segment that up to 50% of polyps are being missed. No one would have thought of that and then the AI is finding it. And then where I'm really excited is in surgical suites as we're trying to democratize good surgery we're building the algorithms using these edge computers, and we'll eventually uh, deliver these into the OR that's providing, think about driver assist technology in the OR. We're not going to be replacing surgeons anytime soon, but we're going to make them better. And surgeons that are using this AI technology are going to be replacing surgeons that don't. Now, these are uh, millions of people are impacted by these things. Right. Millions. Uh, one last thing. I know pacemakers, you've got a new one. It yeah. apparently is much smaller. We'd certainly benefit from a smaller pacemaker. Yeah. You've so this it. is yeah, this is it. This is the uh, micro pacemaker. You know, we first launched this in, in 2015. It covered maybe 15% of traditional uh, pacing uh, indications. We just launched some new versions. Uh, you saw the approval last week. Now we're up to about half. Uh, and it's really, Jim, what this has done is it's, it's helped us gain market share. But more importantly, it's growing the market. Our pacing business is now growing. It's, it's a four billion, three and a half, four billion dollar business growing high single digits because our innovation has lowered the threshold for patients to get pacing. So we've, re we've disrupted ourselves and, 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 and really rejuvenated this market. Well, I've got to tell you, uh, Jeff, it's, it's great to hear Medtronic doing all these very exciting things. It's really important. And I know you've, you, you, you've reinvented the company. And I think that that's a fantastic thing. This is Jeff Martha. He's the chairman and CEO of Medtronic. Kelly, back to you. Wonderful interview, Jim. And it's, it's busy out there, isn't it? Every time I turn around, there's more deal-making. You think that's because of the conference or is just the, the space in general? There's just a yes. lot going on. This is, Kelly, this has historically been a place that a lot of people get deals done. And by the way, there are people who get deals done, and we don't know it for several weeks or months. Right. But everybody's together. And I've got to tell you, I think I'll go do a couple deals myself on that. <laughs> uh, just give us the exclusive. No, Jim, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Absolutely. As always, CNBC's Jim Cramer, Medtronic's Jeff. Jeff Martha. Coming up, we have a deal to avoid a shutdown next Friday, assuming it can actually get passed and signed into law by then. The latest on whether we should expect any significant spending cuts out of Washington this year. And rate cuts. Have you ever thought about how they might impact retailers? Our analyst brings two names he says could see the biggest benefit and names you might want to avoid. As we head to break, here's a glance at markets. Dow ever so slightly and briefly turned positive, but we're down six points while the S&P and NASDAQ are in much firmer ground. The exchange is back after this. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and Starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with P. Jim, a leading global asset manager. 
Welcome back to The Exchange. Top congressional leaders have reached a government spending deal for the moment. Emily Wilkins is in Washington with its details and likelihood of passage. Emily? Hey, Kelly. Well, yeah, shutdown fears eased over the weekend after congressional leaders struck a deal yesterday. And this is on the overall spending number for the current fiscal year. So it's $1.6 trillion, and it reflects the agreement that Congress and the White House reached last June over the debt limit, plus the side deal to increase non-defense spending. Now, Speaker Mike Johnson was able to negotiate several cuts of previously allocated funding. He's going to be rescinding $6 billion in COVID emergency funding and an additional $10 billion in cuts for the IRS this year bringing total cuts for the agency to $20 billion. But while Johnson got Democrats to agree to the cuts, it is not enough for hardline conservatives in his party. The House Freedom Caucus called the bill a, quote, total failure for not doing more to reduce spending. In a Dear Colleague letter, Johnson acknowledged that the plan would likely not satisfy everyone, but vowed to fight to attach additional conservative priorities to the bill. Now, Johnson didn't specify which priorities he'd push for, but measures House Republicans passed in previous bills would fail in a Democratic-controlled Senate. That's going to make any wannabe additions to the spending bills difficult. And now that overall spending is agreed to, the House and Senate, they still have a lot of work to do. They got to reconcile $120 billion in differences between the House spending bills and the Senate spending bills. How quickly that process moves will determine whether or not the government goes into a partial shutdown on January 20th. Kelly? All right. We'll take it as it is for the time being, Emily. Thanks. We're also a week out from the Iowa caucus that kicks election season into high gear. And while everyone says election years are generally good for the market, my next guest warns the path can be a little rocky. And the key is whether we end up with a divided versus a unified government. For more, let's bring in Dirk Willer. He's global head of macro and emerging market strategy at City. Dirk, it's good to see you. Welcome. Thanks a lot for having me, Kelly. What surprised you most as you dug through the data here? Um... Yeah, I think it's uh, the big picture call is is true. It, it is positive for equities the election years. Um, I think what's interesting though is that on a more tactical basis, a, a few months before the election, the market often pulls back, puts in a little bit of risk premium in the price, and um, that is usually unwound then after the election. And in a sense, the interesting thing is that the U.S. elections these days behave almost like the emerging market elections, where a lot of risk premium is put into the market before the election, and that's, it's taken out afterwards. So that is, that is an interesting pattern. Let me um, make sure before you move on that people caught that you said. The interesting thing is that the U.S. elections are behaving like emerging market elections. and I think people would sometimes agree with you in more ways than one. Exactly. So, um, but it, it has been the case for a while, actually, not just since 2016, um, that in the big picture, it's a good year for the S&P. Um, more tactically, you know, at the end of the summer, markets get choppy and that choppiness gets unbound once the election happened. What are the clearest trades people could write down now and use as we move throughout the year? Because some of them are a little quirky. I mean, you, you have, you've got utilities in there, some community, some other sectors, uh, things like that. The dollar is one clear uh, one. And there's like four different outcomes. I mean, I, listen, I'm not a political expert, but as far as I can see, we could have unified Republican, unified Democrat, split uh, GOP president, Democratic uh, Congress, and vice versa. All of this seems to be on the table right now. So what are the clearest uh, ones that for you have obvious trades people could put on? Yeah, the, the unified Democrats is probably the least likely just because the Senate math is really favoring the Republicans. And so two out of the three potential outcomes are actually a, a divided government, which is the best for the market. So though in the big picture, it's broadly positive. But if you go one level below that, 
Um, the election obviously rhymes a little bit with uh, 2016, and some things will be very similar to 2016, some will be different. Uh, the things that will be similar is that we do see dollar strength again, um, and that is partially because we see the risk of more fiscal spending, and we see uh, the risk of tariffs, and both are dollar bullish. I don't think it will be as bad as uh, for the Mexican peso as it was in 2016, but, um, but broadly speaking, dollar bullishness. Um, we also remember in 2016, we saw weaker treasuries. This time, I think that might again happen, but in a steepening context, because the Fed will still be cutting at the time, probably when the election rolls around. So it's not an outright treasury sell-off, but a steeper curve. Um, and then if you go on the sector level, and the, the clear trades are usually that um, Republicans uh, favor, um, favor oil and energy, Mm. Um, but in 2016, it also was very strong for financials and industrials, and that could again play out that way. Um, Democrats, of course, uh, healthcare would would perform the best. So mm. I think on the sector level, you have to choose a little bit um, what your what your potential outcome so, really is. But um, but I think in terms of the risk the market will trade going into the election, um, I think the risk would be a Trump in, and so therefore you could see. Um, industrials and financials doing better than healthcare. Quick last question, Dirk. Let me turn all of this on its head. Now that you've looked at all these playbooks for recent election cycles, does the trading data yet tell you that the market is anticipating one certain outcome here? It's very early, right? I mean, the, a lot of the patterns I described start to work out a few months before the election mm. and um, when, the, when the programs are clearer. And so I think at this stage, you know, the, the market, I think the biggest takeaway from the market is uh, that it's it's believing into a soft landing and not a recession. That's probably a bigger call that you can suss out right now for market behavior than how the election will, will, will pan out. But I think by the end of the summer, the election will be front and center, and then you will be able to draw much firmer conclusions of what the yeah. market is believing and what will be the outcome. All right. We will check back in in a few months' time. Dirk, thanks very much. We appreciate it. Thank you, Kelly. City's Dirk Willer. Coming up, shares of Apple are off to their worst start since 1982 after logging declines in every session this year. We're looking to break that streak today, finally. Could that uh, change if they emerge as a bigger player in AI? We'll talk about that ahead. Plus, an under-the-radar earnings name of 20% in a month. But could what's happening at the U.S. southern border derail its momentum? The CEO joins us ahead. I'm going to call this a mystery chart. Tweet me if you can guess it. We're back after this. Now is the time to accelerate innovation. T-Mobile for Business is powering Formula One Las Vegas Grand Prix operations and epic fan experiences with secure, reliable 5G connectivity. Because an event this big and this fast deserves a network that can set the pace. See what our 5G advanced network solutions can do for your business at T-Mobile.com slash now. View 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. Welcome back. The Dow briefly erased a 200-point drop as Boeing shares have bounced as well off of their session lows. Uh, but we're not entirely in the clear. Let's head over to Dom Chu for more of the movers this hour. Dom? All right. So, Kelly, we'll start with one of the reasons why that tech and NASDAQ outperformance is happening. That's Microsoft, which is up north of a percent on the day, getting some help from analysts over at both J.P. Morgan and Bernstein. They both tagged the software services, cloud computing, and of course now artificial intelligence giant as a top pick for this year. Both have tagged longer-term growth potential for AI-related applications as a reason for that bullishness. So those shares up 1%. Also check out shares of CrowdStrike up over 5% right now in the day, helped in part by analysts over at RBC Capital. 
who've named the cybersecurity and cloud services company as a top pick as well. They see, amongst other things, longer term spending on outlooks for companies like on things like cybersecurity that could help kind of growth in revenues and profit margins as well. So those shares up five and a half percent. And we'll cap things off with the move in shares of DoorDash, which are higher by just around four percent or so right now. The food delivery and e-commerce platform is being named a top pick in the U.S. Internet sector by analysts at Jefferies. They've upgraded that stock to buy from hold. They've also raised the target price to $130 from 90 bucks. They like trends in operating profit growth and think the stock is only being given credit for its domestic restaurant delivery business without giving any value to its international and other verticals. So those DoorDash shares up 4%. Kelly, some of the movers today. Kelly, I'll send things back over to you. All right, Dom, thank you very much. Let's get to Tyler Matheson now for the CNBC News update. Tyler? Kelly, thank you very much. President Biden in South Carolina today for his re-election campaign. He is uh, speaking at the historic Mother Emanuel Church in Charleston, where his speech continues the message that the nation is in the fight for its soul in this upcoming election. The location of the speech links Biden's message to that of the church's history, the site of a horrific hate crime where nine worshipers were massacred by a white supremacist in 2015. Pope Francis called surrogacy despicable and said that it should be universally banned in an annual speech to ambassadors. In the speech, he considered the practice a, quote, commercialization of pregnancy that exploits the material needs of the mother. Surrogacy is either illegal or restricted in much of Europe, and several states in the U.S. have banned the practice as well. And after delays due to the writer's strike in 2023, Stranger Things has officially started production for its fifth and final season. While there are no details yet of a possible release date, additional projects are in the works in the Stranger Things universe, including a play in London's West End. Kelly, back to you. Tyler, I'll see you soon. Thank you very much. Coming up, shares of Birkenstock hitting an all-time high on December 14th, just a day after the Fed's dovish pivot. The shares have since underperformed the broader market, down about 4%. But one analyst says investors are sleeping on the rate cut benefits for Berk. He'll tell us why and the other potential winners and losers next on The Exchange. Stay with us. Back in a moment. Welcome back to The Exchange. Consumers are getting more positive about the economy, with New York Fed inflation expectations falling to their lowest since January of 2021. And after the Fed signaled at its last meeting that rate cuts could be on the table this year, stocks are off to the races. But my next guest says the Fed's shift won't lift all boats, especially in retail. It could actually hurt earnings for the majority of his coverage. Joining me now is Simeon Siegel. He's an analyst with BMO Capital Markets. Simeon, if only everyone would, would do a note like this. I, I just I love hearing about the nuances in terms of the top level rate cuts we talk about and the impact on your coverage universe. So what jumps out? Hey, Kelly, good to see you. So listen, I think everyone hears rate cuts and they think, OK, companies and people will have more money in their wallets and therefore everything is great. The problem is, if you think about it from a corporate perspective, the rate cuts help those who need money. And a lot of retailers are cash rich post the pandemic. And so what we look for was we look for, OK, growth businesses that need money and growth stocks that are valued accordingly. Companies that are heavily in debt stand to benefit. But oddly enough, the healthiest businesses, the ones that have been building up their balance sheets and have watched, like you and I, your personal ability to generate cash, the savings on cash go up, those will see pressure. And so what we found, we found, so you mentioned earlier, Birkenstock, Lifetime, Planet Fitness, we saw these businesses that actually stand to benefit pretty tremendously across various different hmm. uh, angles. 
Those are going to be the ones that are going to benefit from a rate cut. And explain, Sibian, before you you go from there, and you know, most people's minds wouldn't go, ah, rate cuts, Birkenstocks. Why does that company in particular jump out to you as a beneficiary? So the way we were thinking about it, so we basically created three buckets and then ranked our group accordingly. And so what we looked for, we looked for businesses that were growing faster, because if you think about it, growing faster needs the ability, cost of capital going down will help that growth. Mm-hmm. But also... What a multiple is, what a forward multiple is on growth is what that discount, what are the present values worth today? And so if I lower my interest rate, then my discount value goes down. The present value of those cash is worth more now. That's very different than companies that have multiples that are not based on future value. They're just based on consistency. Hmm. And so stock is both a growth stock and a growth company like others in my group. And the reality is having debt in this scenario helps, not because having debt is great, but because having debt was expensive. And so when it was variable and we watched a lot of companies see that funding cost continue to rise, Exactly. if you now believe it's going to come down, that's a relief point. And you also put lifetime fitness in that category. Is that because it's capital intensive? And they're actually, so the third bucket, which is a little bit lazy, was our miscellaneous bucket. It was who has, who has other, le- who's levered to financing. And so a company like Lifetime, which is working on potential sale leasebacks, sees a benefit there that had been a pressure point company like Planet Fitness as an army of franchisees that need to tap financing to build units is another one of these miscellaneous buckets. And so it's this just it's this idea. It's funny. It's counterintuitive because it's the businesses that otherwise were hurt. It's the businesses that theoretically looked less healthy that all of a sudden now totally. look that much better. And no, and I think that makes sense on some level. Let me ask you then, you're sort of saying, look, as we go through this, there might be a lot of companies that, ad- that are you know, adversely affected. Who are they and why? Yeah, so this similar, following that counterintuitive part, and I want to be clear because I'm about to knock good companies. Like, that's what this is. This was, this note was a, let's look at, let's isolate a very specific factor as opposed to let's look at the health of the businesses. Because what happened in December were stocks moved, not tied to numbers. They were tied to the rate conversation. And so what my team tried to do was we tried to isolate stock movements that went too far versus ones that didn't go far enough. And so, for example, our math was last quarter, Gap, Ross Doors, and Ralph Lauren saw tremendous lifts from that cash yield. When you're generating so much, such a return on cash, you watched a number that used to be interest income turn, interest expense turn to interest income. And that's been boosting EPS. And so if that were to diminish, the value that you'd get by saving on your cost of borrowing versus what you'll lose from that free money that cash has given you hmm. could actually weigh in earnings. I want to be clear, it doesn't impact the EBIT, doesn't impact the fundamentals of the business. But we've been, these businesses that trade on profitability, if they trade on EPS, they've gotten that lift. And I think they've gotten it quietly. I don't know if people have fully appreciated how much earnings have been boosted. We've seen anywhere from low single digit to low double digit equivalent of an EBIT number from interest income. It's a big lift. That's really interesting. So basically, and, and there's a lot of the public out there who sort of has enjoyed, yes, you know, we, they don't want inflation, but they've been making money on their savings in a way that they never did previously. And that's been true for corporate America as well. And, and all of a sudden that's going to go away. Yeah. And, and listen, like, I, I think even the way, like, it's probably not all of a sudden going to go away, but it's all about the incremental. It's all about that second derivative. And so what we did, what, what was fun in this report was, we created a scatter plot where we just matched stock movements in December versus this who we think will benefit versus not. Because uh, listen, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm nowhere near smart enough. I'm not going to pretend to call whether and when and how far interest rates are going to go. But it does seem like that's going to be a conversation. I think you and I are going to be talking about this over the year. Yeah. Where 
we're just going to have to figure out, did things get better or worse for these companies because they traded on that second derivative on the way up. No, and there's more granularity in the note. I think it's interesting, not just for retail, but as a microcosm of how other industries could be affected as well, both positive and negative. Simeon, thanks. Good to see you. We appreciate it as always. Great to see you. Simeon Siegel with BMO. Coming up, Apple is by far the biggest points drag on the NASDAQ 100 year to date, shaving off nearly 69 points. Broadcom the second biggest, by the way, at around 30. But Evercore staying bullish on Apple, expecting an earnings beat and saying positive news flow, including that around its Vision Pro headset, maybe you just got the email like me, will help keep its shares afloat. How big of a boost that hardware could provide? That's next. Welcome back. Shares of Apple are off to their worst start since 1982. Critics say the company's lack of a clear AI business plan is partly to blame. But Morgan Stanley today saying they do have a stealth AI strategy. Deirdre Bosa joins us now for today's Tech Check. Deirdre? Kelly, that's right. Apple hasn't had the kind of AI halo that others like Microsoft and Google and Amazon have been able to rely on when the core business isn't performing the way it's supposed to necessarily. But Tim Cook's strategy, it has focused on integrating AI within its ecosystem of devices and services. So instead of a GBT moment, Apple sees AI as something that blends into the user experience and is embedded into your device rather than requiring a change of habits, like intentionally going to a chat GPT or BART. So instead of a chatbot, we could see a generative AI-enabled iPhone, an operating system. That's Morgan Stanley note this morning that Kelly referred to says that even more important than Apple's current fundamentals recovering, 2024 will be the year when Apple's, quote, edge AI opportunity comes to fruition and catalyzes a new upgrade cycle, as well as boosting services spend per user. Now, let me explain this a little bit because it's a very different strategy. Edge computing is the idea that large language models will be run on devices like smartphones and computers, any other devices as well. It could be the Apple Watch instead of the cloud. And remember that Apple has an installed base of more than two billion. So it's a lot of devices that it can work on. That framework, it's called MLX. It even utilizes the Apple ecosystem further by allowing developers to build models on on Apple's powerful in-house silicon So Apple hasn't overly marketed this strategy, but it's certainly there. And a lot of folks to start the year are talking about this, especially here in Silicon Valley, Kelly. All right. Dear the dark horse. Indeed. If we can ever call Apple a dark horse, uh, horse. maybe after the start this year, we can. Dear Jabosa, (laughs) thank you very much. We appreciate it. Coming up, two Texas rail crossings closed last month as migrants converged at the border. And Greenbrier, the largest rail car maker in the U.S., is flagging future shutdowns as a risk and calling the current migration response unsustainable. Greenbrier shares are up 10% since that shutdown was announced, though. We'll check in with the CEO next. Welcome back to The Exchange. Shares of Greenbrier, not the resort, the rail company, are up 6% since reporting an earnings beat, but a revenue miss last Friday. And while the largest rail car manufacturer in the country remain positive on their long-term strategy and backlogs, management flagged some short-term risks, including the potential shuttering of southern border rail crossings. Joining me now for an exchange exclusive is Lori Tecorius. She is CEO of the Greenbrier Companies. Lori, Welcome. Thank you. Happy New Year. Thanks for having me. Happy New Year to you as well. Biggest manufacturer of rail cars, and it's been a tumultuous period in many ways between the pandemic, uh, even now some of the uh, interferences we're facing in terms of getting shipments around the world. What's the biggest segment of your business? 
The biggest segment of our business is our manufacturing operation. Um, and you're right, we have three manufacturing locations in Mexico. We have several manufacturing locations here in the United States, um, but also in Europe, in Poland, and in Romania, as well as Brazil. So talk a little bit about what you're experiencing on that front at a time when we know that uh, the manufacturing segment of the economy has been in negative territory for quite some time. Yeah, it's a really great question because there are so many different layers to this. Um, part of the reason why we have had some difficulty with manufacturing is just being able to get a good, sustainable workforce. Um, we're willing to train people to come and do work, but it's hard work. And so um, this is where, to your point at the at the opening there, the issues on the border crossing are really top of mind for me, as well as many others in the rail industry. Explain that. What are you experiencing these days? Well, thankfully, Greenbrier has not had any significant issues yet in getting equipment um, out of Mexico into the U.S. market. Um, but we also are a big customer of the railroads. We use the railroad to move our inventory into Mexico in order to be able to build our rail cars. So having these unannounced, um, indeterminate closures of rail crossings is a really critical issue. And it's not just about my business, Greenbrier. It is about the overall economy because there is so much commerce that moves across that border. Mexico is our number one trade partner. And to have just the borders closed um, is crazy. Think about it when you're driving down the highway and someone up ahead throws their foot on the brakes and that backs traffic up. Yeah. Traffic doesn't start flowing again just whenever they take their foot off the brake, right? You've, it's going to take time whenever they have these closures to get things moving freely again. And we spoke with the uh, industry trade group uh, for rail maybe a week mm. or two ago about the situation. He was obviously frustrated. So it sounds like we're still at an impasse. Have you gotten any guidance from the administration? We continue to talk to our policymakers. Again, we work with the railroads, customers, our competitors, um, trying to get that. They are really focused on, you know, how they deal with the migration issue. Um, I really do hope that the policymakers in D.C. can find a way to set aside their differences and think about how we can solve this problem. I mean, it's a great country. There are people down there that want to come into our country to have a better life, to work hard. So how do we how do we sort through that as opposed to it just being a, a political issue? And why do you think your shares have held up? Because if the shares were down 50 percent, for instance, and same was true for the whole industry, I'm sure there'd be more, you know, more impetus for action. Uh, that's a great point. I, I would say that our shares are up because we've at the leadership team here, we've been doing what we need to be doing. We've been focused on our footprint, where we have investments in our facilities. We've been right-sizing some of those facilities and really thinking about how can we make investments that improve our manufacturing margins, our aggregate gross margins, so yeah. that we are a better stewards of our shareholders' money. They're taking the long view, it seems. <laughs> and I guess just hoping one way or the other the short-term problems get sorted out. Lori, keep us posted. We appreciate your time. It's good to check in with you. Thank you very much. I appreciate your time. Lori Tecorius with Greenbrier. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and 
producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Mm-hmm.